Thank you, Howard. Uh, I'm at least four inches taller. Um, thank you all so much. That was uh, I've, I've written a thank you note, so I don't try to... I thought, you know, I'm just going to write a thank you note to each person who's put something in here. Okay, that's a lie. But this is from my heart. So if you did not get this, it's back there with the lessons. And um, uh, y'all are so wonderful to me. And I don't know how to tell you thanks. So that's the best effort. And then um, uh, I will try and do so individually. Uh, this is an interesting week for, for, for us, uh, in our household at least. It's um, uh, a week where Tuesday morning around 11 o'clock, if you think about me, I'm, I'm be, we'll be speaking to about 700 lawyers in Florida. And the speech that I, I give this Tuesday is on the art of storytelling. Because as a lawyer, it's, it's one thing, as a trial lawyer, it's one thing that I do is I try to tell stories, uh, 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 honest stories, to... Uh, <laughs> kind of sounds wrong to say, hey, I'm a lawyer, I tell stories. Uh, uh, I relate things in a story manner uh, that are factually true. But the one fun thing about it, I've given this speech, uh, well, not the exact same speech, but I've spoken on this subject before in seminars. And it's fun because some of the best illustrations and proof texts uh, that I have come from the Bible. And so I tell people, I say, you know, I will tell them at the very beginning, one of the best teachers that ever walked the planet is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look at him as he taught his people, he did it with stories. He would tell stories. Because God's wired the human brain to where we learn better sometimes with stories than we do with facts. And, uh, uh, and, and I lay it out. I say, you look at the Bible. God could have written the Bible as an explanation of salvation and a how-to manual in about 22 pages. But instead, he related it over thousand plus years with story after story after story, which you can learn from and chew on. And, and grow as, it, as you understand it more and more and more. And, and it's not because God's um, dumb. God made us. He knows how we think and He knows how we learn and He knows that stories can captivate you from the youngest age to the oldest. And so uh, uh, it's a good way to teach and a good way to learn. So be in prayer for me because it's always fun to stand up in front of all these lawyers and talk about God and uh, uh, how relevant it is to what they do as lawyers if they want to be successful. Um, this morning, we are in Matthew for the third week, and we're looking a little bit sharper focus at a couple of subjects. We want to talk this morning about the temptations and the Sermon on the Mount. These are two things that, uh, uh, to be biblically literate, we need to have very functional in our brains, and they're early in Matthew. Last week, we had covered the narrative, the genealogy, and the narrative materials of the the, the birth and the infancy of Jesus. And, and uh, from there, we don't, Matthew doesn't record a lot of the childhood of Jesus. In fact, none of the Gospels, to any great degree, record, re record the childhood of Jesus. We do have an account of Jesus uh, 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 wowing the scholars in the temple as a young man, but by and large, the Gospels are silent on that time period. Uh, as we read through Matthew then, we get a jump from uh, a young baby Jesus 
leaving Egypt as, as uh, probably a couple-year-old kid, but, but going back and settling in. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is coming of age and is almost uh, uh, somewhere in the 30-year-old range as he goes to John the Baptist to be baptized and to start his ministry. After he goes to be baptized, uh, 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 we, he, Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. That's where we're going to start this morning. As we do it, I want us to keep in mind the purpose that Matthew has, the overriding purpose behind writing his gospel. He, Matthew wants to confirm Jewish Christians in their trust that Jesus Christ was Messiah. Matthew wants to confirm those Jewish Christians in their faith that Jesus is their Messiah. The Messiah in the Jewish mindset, which they got from the Old Testament. As we read through the Old Testament, the prophecies were that God would send a Messiah who would be God's ultimate prophet who would more than anyone else in a perfect manner declare the will of God for the people. We know Jesus does this not only verbally, but by His very life, which was perfect. Jesus declared the Word of God in what He said, but in also what He did. The Jews expected a Messiah prophet. The Jews also expected, remember, Messiah means anointed one, one anointed by God, one on whom God has poured his spirit like you would pour uh, uh, oil. The Jews were also told, and we were told in the Old Testament, to expect a Messiah priest, an anointed priest, a priest who exceeded any priest there had ever been in Judaism. As a priest, the Messiah would, would minister between God and and man would mediate between God and man, would make man worthy to be in relationship to God, and would take care of the sins that man had through sacrifice. And that's expected to be in the, uh, coming in the Old Testament. The third Messiah aspect that was prophesied in the Old Testament was as a king, king of David, a king who would rule over God's people for all eternity, whose throne would never end who would establish a kingdom. Now, the Jews had misunderstandings about these messiahs. The Jews thought that the prophet, the Messiah prophet, would be much more like a Jeremiah or an Isaiah or someone like that. The Jews thought that the, the messianic priest would come into the high priest system. The Jews thought that the messianic king was going to set up an earthly kingdom, that Jerusalem would once would become the new Rome that Jerusalem would rule the world and that the Jews would be the ruling people. The Jews were thinking of an earthly king and did not understand the spiritual aspect that Jesus and God had, had spoken of. But this is what the Jews were expecting. Now, the Jews had had these uh, prophets, priests, and kings before. You know, the most famous prophet was Elijah. You remember Elijah? We covered in the Old Testament, those of you who were here. The most famous priest was Moses, not just his brother Aaron, but Moses himself was the first mediator who was going into the Holy of Holies. The most famous king, of course, was David. And so in the midst of these, the Messiah was expected to come. Some Jews thought one Messiah, some thought three, some thought two as the messiahs would, would roll together. But this is the purpose of Matthew, is to say that Jesus is all three of these messiahs. And so, with that, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and Matthew tells us about the temptations. When Jesus goes out in the wilderness, the first thing Jesus does is He fasts for 
40 days and nights, right? A 40-day fast. Jesus is not the first person in the Bible to fast for 40 days seeking God in their ministry. The first would have been Moses. In Exodus 34, 28, it talks about Moses being up on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights he didn't eat. The second would have been Elijah. In 1 Kings 19.8, it says Elijah ate his fill. And in eating his fill, it was good enough for him to be able to go the next 40 days and minister and, and do the things God wanted him to do in his ministry. And so the Jews were well aware of the fact that fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights is not a bad way for a Messiah priest or a Messiah prophet to get his start. For in fact, that had already happened in the Old Testament. And we see this echo as Matthew writes and makes, wants to make sure the readers and, and those of us understand this wasn't just something that Jesus did. It was something that God put on Jesus' heart. So Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He goes off by himself for 40 days and 40 nights. Matthew tells us to be tempted by Satan. Or the, 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 the English, uh, the Greek is going to use the word for devil. Satan itself is a Hebrew word. It means one who hates, a hater. Um, um, uh, and that at his core, that hatred is what Satan has. Um, but he goes out there and after 40 days, Satan comes out to tempt Jesus. Now, the first temptation is one that, uh, as Matthew records them, is one that, that I find most... Uh, uh, um, it, it, it comes most into my brain as I walk through. Who's ever been tempted by Satan? Okay. All right, I'm glad I'm not alone there. <clears throat> if he's not tempting you, then get your life in order. Okay? Because if he's ignoring you, you must not be bothering him. He must figure you're already on his side. Okay? He only fights those on the other side, generally. I mean, he wants to make everybody miserable. But he's, if you're on his side, you already are miserable. Uh, this one really echoes in my brain and has for years because this is one I grew up um, trick-or-treating and I'd seen the devil. He wears a red suit. He's got the pitchfork. He's got pointy ears and a tail. I've seen him on TV. I'm TV generation. I've seen the cartoons. The angel sits on this shoulder. You know it because he's dressed in white with a halo. And the devil always sits on this shoulder. You know it because he's dressed in red and has his pitchfork, his point, and his tail. Have you seen that on TV? Okay. That's a trick. That's a trick. Keith Green had a song about Satan. And it, the whole point of the song is Satan says, my job is getting so much easier now. Because nobody believes in me anymore. He says, I used to have to sneak around. Now I can just walk in the door. It's getting so much easier now because no one believes in me anymore. Well, we believe in him. But sometimes we tend to think he's what we saw on a Halloween night. Or he's what we saw on a TV show. And Satan is not so bold. Satan does not come to tempt you wearing a red uh, leather garb with a trident pitchfork, pointy ears, and a tail. 
Satan does not jump out in front of you and say, hey, I dare you to change sides. Satan tempts you like a good old boy. He doesn't come up to you and square you off face to face and say, I challenge you. He comes up to you. If Lewis, can I borrow you? If we're going to get the visual image of this first temptation, it's not, all right, you get to be Jesus. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't leave me the role I like, but it makes the point. It, this first temptation is not Satan coming up saying, okay, all right, I dare you. Okay, here, here. You want this? Right here. Here's the carrot. Come on, come on, come on. No, doesn't do that. Satan is very deceptive. Satan comes up to Jesus like this. Hey, buddy, man, I know you've had a tough time of it. You haven't eaten in 40 days. Look at that. <laughs> hey, you need some food, man. We've got to get you some food. Look, hey, if you're the son of God, you, you can change those rocks right over there in the food. Get you something to eat and then we'll talk because I know we've got to talk. Go on. Go get it done. Hey, what could be friendlier? What could be friendlier than offering bread to a man who's starving? See, Satan comes in disguise. Satan wants you to think he's the nicest thing in the world. He's just meeting your needs. It's not your fault you're hungry. It wasn't Jesus. I mean, hey, look, we can do the temptation thing. We can have this confrontation. We can talk about who you want to serve, Jesus. But... You got to be hungry, man. First thing you need to do is get something to eat. You see the deception there? Jesus knew that Jesus was going to get his direction on what to do and his sustenance for his life from God, not from Satan, not from a rock, and not from himself. And so Jesus answers and says, My sustenance and ideas aren't coming from you, Satan. They come from God. Deuteronomy 8.3 Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you can just see inside Satan going, Darn, I thought I had it. So Satan says, Alright, alright, hey, whatever, whatever. You, I understand your appreciation for Scripture. I too appreciate Scripture. I do. Satan says, let me, let me give you another one. Let's don't talk about physical needs. You've got a point. Tell you what, though. Come with me. And we don't know how. We don't know if it was the way Elijah was swept up in the Spirit or what it may have been. But Satan takes Jesus to the highest, most pinnacle of the, the temple in um, Jerusalem. And Satan says to Jesus, you know what would really be cool? You can throw yourself down from here. And nothing's going to hurt you. Nothing's going to happen to you. You throw yourself down and everyone's going to know you're the Son of God. Because it says in the Bible, and Satan starts quoting from the Psalms, it says in the Bible, He will command His angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
Now, understand, Satan is not the opposite of God. It's not like God is all of these things and Satan's the exact opposite. Because God is all-powerful and all-knowing. Satan is not. Okay, it's not like Satan's all-powerful and all-knowing, just evil. Okay. Satan doesn't know things that God knows. Satan had no clue what Jesus was really about. I mean, if you thought for a moment, if we thought for a moment Satan understood Jesus' work in ministry, Satan never would have had Jesus killed. Satan believed, I think, that Jesus was about setting up an earthly kingdom, much as the Jews thought. Satan thought by killing Jesus, he was destroying any hope of an earthly kingdom for the man, God. So Satan says, hey, Jesus, you want to be an earthly king? You want everybody to know you're the son of God? Throw yourself down from here. Think about it. And this will make all the newspapers. Everybody, this is from the temple. You throw yourself down from the temple where everybody comes to worship. They will adore you. And Jesus' response is, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again, from Deuteronomy. And Jesus says, no, I'm not here to establish my credentials. I'm here to do the will of God. Let God establish my credentials. I don't need to go out and tell everybody how great I am. I need to do what God sent me to do. And I'm not going to test God. And I'm not going to tempt God. Satan says, okay, look. Bottom line, Jesus, is this. You want the world, I'll give you the world. You don't have to wait. You want it, I mean, if that's the goal, King Jesus, Messiah King, that's fine. Because I really have authority over the world. You look around, all these people are sinners. That means they're mine. So I'll make a deal with you. You bow down and worship me. And I'll give you the world. I'll make you the king of everything. You can get where you're going right now. You don't have to work at it for years. None of this three-year ministry, none of this starving in the wilderness, I don't make it hard the way God does. My rules are so much easier. And you just bow your knee to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms. You get the world. And Jesus' response to Satan's offer to get his mission done, to get Jesus' mission done quicker and easier is away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship Yahweh your God and serve only him. And so Satan flees and angels minister to Jesus. Now, don't even remotely think you're going home yet. But this is a suitable time to pause and talk about some lessons for home from just the temptations before we move on. Number one, Satan is a charmer. He is a charmer. Number two, store up God's Word in your heart and your mind. One of the things that we get away from once we're no longer in Bible school like our children are memory verses. Gracie, my daughter's in here this morning, used to go to a Christian school now goes to public school. She doesn't have Bible anymore. She doesn't have memory verses that they have to do in school. When was the last time any of you were somewhere where you had verses you were needed to, or were required to commit to memory for something? I don't remember mine. But 
Look at how the Word being so fresh in Jesus' mind and heart helped Him come against the evil one because it dwelled up within Him. We as parents and adults and grandparents and young adults and all the different age groups in here, we need to be committing Scripture to memory. We just need to make a decision. I'm going to start in my quiet time. I'm going to find a verse. May not do it every day. May do it once a week. But I am going to start trying to commit some Scripture to memory. Um, when I was uh, in high school, I was challenged to do that by a preacher, a fellow named Don Finto. And Don was memorizing 1 Corinthians. And uh, just blew me away. So I decided I'd start memorizing. So I memorized through Philippians. Um, I didn't have an NIV then. I, I don't think it had... Actually, it came out in the New Testament like 77... Yes, this was before the NIV came out. I memorized it in the New American Standard, which is absolutely useless to me now. But that's okay because I've forgotten most of it. And isn't that horrible? I had memorized an entire book of the Bible and here I am, I'm 43 now, and I have forgotten it. I mean, I... I can do a good bit of it, but, but that's just pathetic. It's pathetic that I memorized more Scripture as a high school student and a college student than I have in all of the years since then. And do I remotely think that my need for Scripture is less now? It's not. If anything, it's more. Store up God's Word. Just make a commitment. I'm going to do it. I'm going to find a passage that means something to me. I'm going to memorize it. I'm going to be able to say it. It will change your life. God will use those passages. He'll bring it to mind in the most bizarre times for you. I, I give you my word on that. I really believe it. And I'll make that commitment to start doing that as well if you'll make that commitment with me. Okay, who'll make it? Thank you. Let's, we've made that commitment together. And I'll hold you accountable. <laughs> Not really. But you can, <laughs> I'll ask you about it. You can hold me accountable. You ask me, hey, have you memorized anything lately? And, and, and we'll do it. Number three, don't test God. Give Him yourself. It is not your job to test God and figure out if God's doing stuff right or wrong. It's not your job to try and manipulate God into how He should act and what He should do. Um, I had a lawyer. I've got a, a case I'm handling with him. Uh, it's a tragic case, uh, just absolutely horribly tragic case. This little baby who uh, um, uh, was not uh, treated properly and is basically will live a normal life expectancy but will have the brain capacity of a one-month-old uh, for the rest of his life. His brain was fried when he went into the hospital at the age of 11 months. Went in giggling and cooing and playing hide-and-seek and saying mama, uh, left, uh, deaf unable to talk, function here, and will still live a normal life expectancy. And this lawyer came to me and said, would you handle this case? And this is a good Christian lawyer and a friend of mine. I said, sure, Ray, I'd, I'd love to. I'd be honored to. And uh, um, then about two or three weeks into it, he says, you know what I think we ought to do? I think we ought to lay down a fleece. I said, well, what do you mean? Of course, back in my brain, I know he's talking about Gideon and the fleece. And he says, I think we ought to tell God, God, they either pay us X number of dollars in the next week for this case, or we won't settle at all. We'll go to a jury and, 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 and give God that opportunity to make them pay or we'll know what God's will is. And I said, hey, 
I don't do that. Well, Gideon's fleece. It's a different situation, different story, and different time. And I read what Jesus said, and I have no desire to test God. I just want to do what God wants me to do, minute by minute, day by day. And if God wants me to settle the case, if I've got my eyes open, he'll certainly let me know. And if God wants us to try the case, if I've got my eyes open, he'll certainly let me know. But I'm not into this testing God stuff, and I don't think you ought to be either. Number four, go God's way. Don't go your own way. Don't go Satan's way. If God wants something done and God's got the provision for it, you walk God's path. You don't find your shortcuts. Abraham, it didn't work for him. God said, I'm going to give you a son. Sarah couldn't get pregnant, so Abraham goes and has a child by the handmaid. No, it wasn't God's way. Go God's way. All right? Next, Sermon on the Mount. Now, there's a couple of verses and things that Matthew records before this, but in the stream of biblical literacy, we're going to move on into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, basically, what we're skipping over is Matthew talking about uh, uh, Jesus uh, healing people just in a generic sense, about Jesus preaching. There's a call of the first couple of apostles. But then we've got Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount starts in chapter 5 of the book of Matthew. And the reason it's called the Sermon on the Mount is because... On the nose. Well, it's right on the nose. Um, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he sits down to preach. And the crowds are there in front of him. And the sermon he preaches we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Matthew doesn't use that phrase. Matthew doesn't say, now let's discuss the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew merely gave us the phrase by saying, now when Jesus saw the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and Jesus began to teach them saying. And what uh, uh, he starts with are what we call the Beatitudes. Now, Beatitudes comes from the Latin word beatitudo, which means to be happy or to be blessed or to be fortunate. Okay? The Beatitudes is not put together of two English words, be attitudes. These are the attitudes you should be. That's valid. I mean, these are be attitudes, but it'd have two T's in it there, A-T-T attitudes, if that's what we were really dealing with. So, so don't turn into... To, um, uh, in, uh, English language detectives and say the Beatitudes are these, we call them this because these are attitudes you should be. Uh, no. This is like um, beatify, which is one of Becky's favorite words for when the Catholic Church would take people and turn them into... I used that word once. She said, what? I used that word once and you told me I made it up. I did not make it up. It comes from the same Latin word. Which brings up another point. If DeMond's going to preach on marriage like this for a few more weeks, we need to go back to the Jewish system of husbands on one side of the aisle and wives on the other. Okay? My ribs are sore. Anytime he says something, she oh, oh, oh. And we're sitting in front of this couple that are in our class. Becky finally says to me as class starts, she says, you know, they're going to think we're cut-ups because of the way we were laughing through church. And I said, well, you are. <laughs> um, these are the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes start the Sermon on the Mount. And, and this is where Jesus says, for example, blessed are the meek. 
for they will inherit the earth. The word blessed there is probably not a translation of the Hebrew word baruch, which is a standard word for blessed. It, it means rather happy and fortunate. Okay? Um, the word uh, uh, blessed then is happy or fortunate are these people. Now, question. Who wants to be happy and fortunate and blessed? Okay, everybody. Now, here's some. this is a cool thing. This is the kind of stuff. I'm not saying you reduce God to a formula, but I'm telling you, this is what Jesus tells you. Tell me if you want any of this. Anybody want in the kingdom of heaven? That's a good one. Anybody want to be comforted? I was talking to the butlers this morning. They've just had a memorial service for their dad who died about the same time our dad did. You know, comfort is something we look for. Comfort. Who wants to be comfortable? We've got a lot of people in here who, who have some serious illnesses. We've got a lot of people in here who have a lot of trauma going on at work. Anybody want to be comforted? Yes. That's a good one. All right, let's go for that one. Um, Alec, I'll take the attitudes for 300. What is inherit the earth? Who wants to inherit the earth? Now, that does not mean that you're going to have to pay taxes on it. What that means is, basically, that, that you will be able to live here as, as, as a, a part of it. I mean, this, this is part of, of who you are. This is, you're, you're not ostracized. You're not locked away in a box. You can walk. You can function. You, you can live openly and free. This, this, is, this is your destiny. Okay? Who wants to be filled with righteousness? I really want that one. That's a good one. Who wants to be shown mercy? I need that one. I need some mercy. Who wants to see God? You want to see God? I'd like to see God. You want to see God? Who wants to be called a child of God? I look out here, I see my friends all around me, but people who get called all sorts of names because they're out in the public eye. Who wants to be called a child of God? At least by the people who have enough sense to call you something right. <laughs> if you want to go to, the, if you want uh, the kingdom of heaven, you need to be poor in spirit, persecuted for Jesus. Poor in spirit means the opposite of haughty and prideful. You don't find Jesus in the kingdom of heaven walking around, sticking your chest out and beating it because of how good you are. You find Jesus when you need Him because you're not so good. Persecuted for Him can mean lots of things. If you live in Iraq, it can mean you get killed. Um, as a missionary in China, you can get in trouble. As in any number of But it also can mean when you stand up for right in your workplace. When you stand up for right uh, uh, in, in our culture and people make fun of you. When you stand up for right in school. When you lose a, a, a boyfriend over it or when you lose a, a, a good friend over it because you're going to walk this path. Comfort it. Jesus says, if you, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Mourn here in the sense of go to Jesus with what's wrong. You go to God with your hurts and God will never shut the door on you. God will not shut the door on you. You go to God with your mourning and with your hurting and he doesn't take away the pain, but he holds you. And he takes care of you. 
The meek are going to inherit the earth. You want to be able to walk out with pride? Not pride. Walk out with well, pride in a good sense. But that's such a bad word. I want to find a better one. You want to walk out with confidence that everything's okay? And you walk out not in your own power, but walk out in the power of God. You be meek in your own power. And you let God be your strength. And nothing's getting in your way. You want to be filled with righteousness? Hunger for it. You want to be filled with righteousness? Hunger for it. Lots of people are upset because they're stuck in sin that just is tearing them down and holding them down. And it's this, this spiral going down in the bathtub of water, of sin. that They just twist and go down. You, and they're, they're saying, oh, I want to be righteous. Then hunger for it. Go out and get it like you try to get food. For some people, that's three times a day. For others of us, that's about seven or eight times a day. You hunger for righteousness like you hunger for food. You thirst for it. You want seven glasses of water today? Get seven doses of desire for God's righteousness in your heart. You will see your life change. You will see that you are whoops, filled with righteousness. You want to be shown mercy? Be merciful. You want to see God? You want to see God? I ask. A bunch of people raise their hands. They want to see God. Be pure in heart. Get your heart right. Get rid of all of the things that stand in the way of you seeing God. See, the biggest problem we've had since Genesis chapter 1 is God made man to be in God's image. But we spend our lives trying to remake God into ours. I can tell you exactly who God is. I can tell you who He votes for for president. I can tell you everything about Him. No, no, no. Let's purify our hearts. And as our hearts are pure, we will more purely see God. We'll be learning His language so we can see Him. You want to be called a child of God? Be a peacemaker. This is a big one for me. This is one of my big desires. This is a big part of my prayer life. Lord, make me a peacemaker. I want to make peace between people. It's kind of funny for a trial lawyer to have that as his prayer. But Lord, let me make peace between people. Not just when it's convenient and you dump it in my lap. Let me go out of my way to try and make peace between people. If it's a married couple, Lewis spends a lot of time with married couples trying to make peace. Maybe in your own marriage, you need to stick yourself out and try to make peace. Maybe with members of your family you're estranged from. You want to stick yourself out and make peace. Be a peacemaker. Now, this is not something that's just done by you becoming a doormat. Sometimes you may need to be a doormat, but sometimes that's not a good peacemaker because you'll just get rolled all over and no one will ever respond. But So it takes wisdom. It takes Seeking God, it takes a pure heart, it takes good counseling, maybe you need counseling over it, but it needs to be a motivator inside you. It needs to be a, a direction point for your compass to orient. You need to think, how can I help make peace? You know, I see Ron Hickman here, our constable. He is a peace officer. Now, sometimes as an officer of the peace, what he's got to do is rough some people up. But he helps keep the peace. 
See, keeping peace is not always just being a doormat. It takes different forms at different times. But the goal is the peace. And, uh, you know, I want my children. Uh, our son's basically gone. We never see him again. But I've still got four daughters at home, and I see them occasionally. And that's one of my desires for them. I want my daughters to grow up and say, you know, the overwhelming thing I'm going to do in the next 24 hours is I'm going to try and be a peacemaker. And let that be something that's not a one-day thing. Let that be a charge for their life. We're in trouble. Jesus goes from there. And uh, Jesus, remember when I gave out the outline, the syllabus, I said this was tentative. This is why. Um, Jesus goes from the Beatitudes and he says to, in verse 13 of chapter 5, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? Man, it's just useless. You might as well throw it out and stomp on it. Salt, for those people, was um, first and foremost a preservative. None of them had good working refrigerators. So if you wanted to preserve meat, you just salt the living daylights out of it. If you wanted to preserve anything, it was salted by and large. Salt was in great demand. Um, up until really the advent of refrigerators, salt was in great demand. Uh, you will find, um, uh, anybody ever been to Salzburg, Austria? Okay, you'll know it because the hills are alive with the sound of music there. <laughs> but that, that whole, the whole burg, the whole village is built originally around the salt because they have salt mines there. Salzburg is a salt city. And it was a huge, very rich city. Mozart was born there. Very rich city because of the, the salt trade that came from there. Salt was huge. It was incredibly valuable. It was necessary for life. Now, Jesus says to his followers, you're the salt of the earth. You are the preservative for our culture. I'm going to transform it from what Jesus is saying to you to all of us because I'm in this boat with y'all. We're God's preservatives for our culture. We are to go out and to permeate everything we do with God and His goodness. Are you a musician? Let God's music, or let God permeate your music. Do you, are you a music appreciator? Then let God permeate how you appreciate music. Seek God in what you're doing. Are you a, a, an accountant? Then you're going to be coming across people, business people, tax people, people who work for the uh, Infernal Revenue Service, people who, you know, and all these different... Let God permeate what you're doing. Let God permeate... Every relationship you've got. Everybody you deal with. Let God permeate every area you have business. Let God work through you. Because God says, you and I, we're the preservatives of God's... You want culture to go to heck in a handbasket? Then let the church quit preserving. You, you, you say, I'm going to shut all of the doors. We're going to have God in here and nowhere else. And you will see our culture decay and crumble. 
But if you want to see it preserved and you want to see it enriched and you want to see it grow and thrive instead of rotten like rotted meat, then take all that God has for you and go out there. And as Jesus says next, He says, like a, hill, a light set on a hill, shine in the darkness. Someone said once that Christians don't need to be involved in the arts and culture. I cringe over that. I mean, our God is first and foremost shown Himself to be, in Genesis 1, a God who creates. And He made us in His image. Shouldn't we be creative? Shouldn't we create? Isn't it okay sometimes just to draw a picture because we're expressing God's ability to create? Shouldn't we as Christians write songs even if no one's ever going to hear them because they're absolutely rancid? But we're just, I'm just going to write a song today in my car driving down the road that nobody will hear because I'm creating. See, I'm going to be who God has made me to be. And, and that kind of an attitude is much better. Don't think Christians need to stay away from the arts. Christians need to permeate the arts. We need to permeate everything. We're the preservers of culture. We need to permeate poetry. We need to write stories. We need to, to teach our children. If you're a teacher, heavens don't keep God out of what you teach. Now, if you can't stand up in a public school and say, thus saith the Lord, that's fine. But you can by what you're doing. See, we're to be salt and light, Jesus says. We're to permeate the world and our culture with God. Where we work, where we play, where we live, where we socialize. Who we see casually, who we see professionally, who we bump into accidentally. Permeate with God. Let God just, just be thinking as you go out today. Be thinking several things. But one of the things, because we're going to stop here and I'll do more Sermon on the Mount next week. One of the things I want you to be thinking, though, is I'm going to go out and I am going to, to like a salt shaker, everywhere I go, I'm just going to, going to have God permeating things. Now, I don't mean go out there and slap people over the head with a big King James Bible. Okay? That's God polluting things sometimes. But I just mean in the way you carry yourself and what you say and how you treat people in the love that you show, you truly do what you think Jesus would do as best as you can by the Spirit of God. Is that fair? Alright, let's pray together and we'll stop here. Lord, thank You so much for this class and all that they mean to me and uh, the wonderful people who are in here that encourage me week after week. Uh, it is my prayer, Lord, that Your Spirit will work in our class, that You'll give me wisdom and words beyond what I have, and that You'll clean out all of our ears and You'll soften all of our hearts and You'll quicken our spirits, make our minds alert so that we can see You in the process of renewing who we are and transforming us, changing us every day into being a little bit more like Your Son, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, in whom we pray, Amen.